Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14? We'll be going through uh, 17a today. Have you ever taken on something that at first look is invigorating, you know, exciting, motivating? But then, as you get into it, it becomes daunting, increasingly more challenging, and maybe you even doubt it's possible. You know, I find that happens a lot to me when I take on a house project. Some of you know that I'm remodeling my house, so I got a lot of them. And I think, oh, this is only going to take an hour. (laughs) Four hours later, I still haven't finished. And a recent example is... uh, I was replacing the Velcro pad on my sander because it wasn't sticking anymore. It shoot them out like a little, like, this flying out there. Um, so I took off the screws, uh, went to put on the new pad, and it was the wrong size. I was like, okay, well, four hours later. Um, my hands go up in the air, and it wasn't the praise God. <laughs> uh, but weeks go by, I finally get the, the Velcro pad, that's the correct size, and I go to put it on, but I can't find the mounting screws. Like I, I said, I don't know where they are. And my hands go up again. <laughs> uh, and I, I just don't even want to touch it at this point. Like, I'm just frustrated. A couple of days later, I go look into my tools, and I find, uh, went to go get a drill bit, and lo and behold, the mounting screws. Oh, Okay. And after all, all that, my motivation starts to, to come back, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, I had the sander for a project. Okay, I'm going to start using it for that, uh, which is going to take more time than I expect, right? Now, this concept hits us in so many aspects of our life, uh, even in the Christian walk. And Paul has been discussing in Ephesians this idea of the gospel that brings reconciling love between God and his people, and each other in the church. And that is going to bring God glory. Now, this sounds nice, but how many of you find that to reconcile with anyone is an easy task? I find it very difficult. I can find it very difficult. It's it's difficult because we aren't always on the same page, right? We might not even be in the same book, And we aren't capable of doing this on our own power. Like, I can't force anyone to reconcile with me. But this is why Paul is going to offer up this prayerful appeal. So let's read in in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. We're going to go through verse 19. I know I said 17a, but we're going to focus on 17a. But I'm going to read through verse 19. So it says, For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like I said, we're going to be focused on 
14 to 17a there. But what I want you to understand is that God's reconciling love is the power given to us through the Spirit. Let me say that again. God's reconciling love is the power given to us through his Spirit. You know, we are faced with an exciting and at times daunting task of becoming like Christ. Becoming unified for Christ, which is ultimately for his glory. Now let's first look at how Paul, there we go, recognizes the church's need for God's power. And this is my first point. Paul recognizes the church's need for God's power. We're going to expand more on what God's power is, but first, let's look at why Paul is even bowing his knees before the Father. So right before bowing, Paul says, for this reason. Now, if you remember back to beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, Paul started by saying, for this reason. So what we need to look at is the verse before it. So for this reason, the verse before it is, the reason. Chapter 2, verse 22, it says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The reason of this prayer is to be united together for God, to dwell with his people by his Spirit. This speaks to a, a structure that is focused on God which helps us to make sense of where Paul goes with this prayer. So back in uh, chapter 3, verse 14, it says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, stop there for a second, Paul addresses God the Father. He is the head of the family. And Paul bows his knees, which the custom of prayer in that day was more to stand and lift up your hands. So, this speaks to Paul's submission to God's authority and his intense reliance upon God to accomplish only what God can accomplish. I think as Christians that all of us would agree that we need God's power. We need it. The question becomes, are you seeking his power to accomplish your own purposes or his? You might answer yes to both to that. But I would caution you on needing God for your own purpose. See, I think we are to cast our burdens upon God, right? We have a, we have a need for that, a personal need for that, especially that over uh, the victory of sin. So, <clears throat> but we are to be submitted to him. You know, claiming him as Lord. Now look back to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. It says, He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So to be a healthy family of God, we need to remember that our need for God is not because we need a genie who grants our every wish. That's not what we need. We need him to be the source of life so that we follow his will. 
Remember, in this section, we are discussing his purpose to have a unified people that he dwells with. And this unity is amazing because we are in rebellion against God. And we were in rebellion against God, selfish towards each other. But through Christ, we are made into a new humanity where we no longer fight, but we serve this amazing God. We no longer serve ourselves, we serve each other. And this is why God will be glorified. I can't think of another king or God that has taken his enemies and made them friends and made them family. Now, remember myself back in college. I professed to know God's salvation at this point, but I was still in the place of my life that was very much for myself. And before I continue uh, with the story, let me remind you of a, a verse here. James 4, chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Back in college, see, I wanted to have fun. You know, I wanted things to be easy. I wanted to get my degree, get rich, have a nice-looking family, big house, nice car, retirement. Now, by this description, would you say that I was a friend of God or of the world? Yeah, there's nothing innately wrong with these things, but because they were my idol, I was an enemy of God. Now, God didn't give me those things. Praise him. I thought my life would go my way because God saved me, but life didn't go my way. And I needed help. I was on the verge of flunking out of school, uh, which before college, I was a good student. Um, I I got mono. uh, I was in unrepentant sin. And my dreams, as stated before, became more unattainable in my mind. And I was in a place where my spirit was broken. So I turned to this God that had given me salvation. And I started to realize that I didn't know what I was doing. And I started to read the word. And I read the story of Abram back in Genesis. How he left what he knew and came to a place called Bethel. And there he worshipped God. And then a famine hit. And instead of turning to God, the God he just worshipped, Abram takes his wife, and Sarai, and goes to Egypt. And there he calls his wife his sister for fear of the Egyptians killing him, right, and taking his wife. But since she was available, Pharaoh takes her. Oh no, this is bad. God then intervened put fear into Pharaoh so that he understood Sarai was the wife of Abram. And then they left Egypt only to return back to Bethel to again worship God. And I took that story at that time in my life. And I trusted God, wanted me to go back to where I first came to know him. And I went back to the church where I first received the gospel 
of Christ. And God was working to transform my heart. And years went by. Years. And what I see is that God took an arrogant, fearful boy that had a beard. (laughs) And what I hope people would see is now a changed man that lives a lot less for himself and lives more to give glory to the God that not only saved him but is sanctifying him. And I now desire to be a follower of God's will, no longer trying to bend his will to my own, but my will submits to him. And there are times it needs to be checked. My will needs to be checked. But the trend of my life is forever changed because God has the ability. God has the ability. And that's why Paul states back in Ephesians according to the riches of his glory. Man, he has the ability. And why he also states uh, in verse 20 in chapter 3 there of Ephesians, um, which we'll look at next week, to him who is able to do far more abundantly. And in verse 21, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. See, Paul also makes a statement to God's ability in Ephesians Chapter 1, verses 19 through 21 says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in the age, this age, but also in the one to come? Again, God's ability isn't about you, it's about him. How he has reached out into the darkness and is building a dwelling place made of all the saints. We don't deserve this favor. And we can never accomplish it on our own. Only God can. This God is powerful deserving of our submission to him and our dependence upon him. And to get us to that place, we need to understand the intentions of his power. Which brings me to my second point. I see in Paul is writing here that God's power is particular to reconciling love. God's power is particular to reconciling love. Let's again read Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 17a. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, we tend to think of power as control, right? Power is control, but not as love. There are many ways we try and gain that control through manipulation, uh, finding the advantage over others, having more knowledge, gaining more wealth. But these power plays all fail because at the end of the day, we don't have control. We don't have control. We can't stop conflict, sickness, death, 
And that should be enough of an argument to say that we don't have control. We see throughout history man trying to gain more power. And during that time uh, that Paul wrote this letter to to the Ephesians, um, we see that they sought all different kinds of gods to get that power. They acted in superstition in order to gain a particular God's favor and power for their own personal gain. It sounds like a power play to me. They want control. And Ephesus was at that time an epicenter for pagan worship and was very wealthy because of the trade that the temples brought, especially that of the goddess Artemis or Diana, who was considered the goddess of fertility. Now, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel of Christ. In this very letter, he is combating this idolatry based on selfish power. And he wants the church to grow and be built together for God's dwelling. And he knows only by God's power can this happen. Now, God's power doesn't work the same way uh, the people of Ephesus are used to, and quite frankly, the same way that we are used to. See, God gives it freely and abundantly to his people, but with a purpose. See, so what is the power of God? Well, The Greek word used here is dunamis. It means power or strength. But before we look at the the context of what God's power is specifically used for in this section, let's consider what makes God powerful. And this is not an exhaustive list. So he has the power to create. Okay? The water, earth, plants, animals, sky, sun, moon, stars, universe, and those made in his image, people. His creation is complex and thought out. And I could research a bunch of examples of scientific discovery to show this complexity, but the fact is that we're still continuing to discover the complexities of God's creation, so that speaks to it. Now, you can study further God's power to create. You can read Genesis. Now, he also has the power to restore that which is broken the power to restore that which is broken. For example, look at at the different miracles Jesus performed, from healing the withered hand, the blind seeing, the resurrection of Lazarus. These were just a taste of his power to restore. For Christ came to restore a broken humanity and restore his kingdom in our midst. Broken by our sin against God, Christ sacrificed himself on the cross, taking the death penalty of the whole world's sin. And then he resurrected. He claimed victory over our sin and death itself. The result was to create a new humanity that knows the love of God and acts in his commands of love. I like how Psalm 23 3 puts it. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. 
Now, very much tied to this power to restore is his power to reconcile. His power to reconcile. He didn't just die for us so that we can go about our, uh, our business as before. It intentionally deals with the broken relationship between us and God and between each other. Now, as we discussed earlier, we need God to be the head of the family, to be the authority in our lives, to be the one we worship, and to be one we truly trust to sacrificially give of ourselves. Now, to be a follower of Christ is to lose your life in order to find it. You know, Jesus said that in Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. It said, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is unsettling. <laughs> we can't have both Jesus and our selfishness? No, they can't live together in peace. One has to die for reconciliation to have full effect. In this case, Jesus did die. Yet he used his death to draw us out of ourself so that we realize our selfishness can die in order to follow this loving God. And we see this practically in the early church as the Jews were asked to lay down their opinions so that the Gentiles would be brought into the church. In Acts 10 and 11, we see the Spirit move in the church to reconcile the Jews and Gentiles. Now, Peter has a vision. It's kind of weird. He has a vision. Then, in essence, tells him that God has made clean, do not call unclean. This is speaking of the Gentiles, and this, <clears throat> some men from uh, the house of Cornelius come, uh, a Gentile, a centurion, and requested Peter to come to Cornelius. This would have been a say no to Gentiles moment for Peter. But let's pick up the story as Peter is recounting all of this to the church in Jerusalem. In Acts 11 here, verse 12, says, And the Spirit told me, to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send a Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? 
when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, God worked a reconciliation that would not have taken place in the hearts of the Jewish Christians. The Spirit transformed them to no longer keep others away from God for sake of their quote-unquote own holiness. And this example is to us God's reconciling power. Our God created all things. He has the power to restore and the power to reconcile. And remember, that's not an exhaustive list of God's power, but it clues us into how God uses his power. Jesus doesn't just do random powerful things. We need to be careful to not look for the ambiguous power of Christ to work in our lives. Spiritual power that is mentioned in Scripture can and has been pursued in order to gain selfish glory, not for God's glory, such as power to heal, speaking in tongues, giving prophecy, or performing miracles, to speak a few. And we need to ask ourselves, for what purpose are these, even those, manifested? It isn't for our glory. It is to show care to the body of Christ and demonstrate his working power for his glory. The power of God has not been demonstrated to be ambiguous. It is intentional. It is based on a spirit-led love that directs us to be sacrificial of ourselves to God and to each other in order to be in unity. Which gives God glory. Proclaiming to all the cosmic powers that this is the true God that is great. No other is like him. No other is like him. And this God isn't telling us to do as I say, not as I do. He did act selfless, sacrificially, and brings new life. He is the one who bears the heavier burden, but there is still a burden on us. He does have expectations of us to walk in his commands, but he didn't set us up to fail. For God strengthens us with his power of reconciling love. Not strengthened, just stop with Jesus and his work on earth. No, he sent us a helper, the Holy Spirit. Which brings me to my third point. God dwells in the church by his spirit. God dwells in the church by his spirit. Let's reread Ephesians three sixteen through 17a. So he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this text is a bit difficult to not get personally wrapped into it. This is because we can feed this verse to be only for our personal relationship with God and empowerment by the spirit. 
But I want to be very clear to validate that God does have a personal relationship with each of us individually. But as we look at the context, Paul is addressing the church, individuals coming together corporately. So remember, this is a letter that was written to Ephesus, the church. Second, the surrounding context of this prayer, remember, is chapter 2, verse 22, which is the church is the dwelling place for God. And then in chapter 4, we're going to see there is a plea to bear with one another in love and maintain the unity of the Spirit. So if unity for God's glory is the context, then this isn't just about the individual. It's about all of us working towards this. And the only way we can reach this unity is to be strengthened with power, which is the reconciling love of Christ through the Helper, which is the Holy Spirit. Now, because of these reasons, the usage of in your being and in your hearts is not addressed just to just you. Think of the your not as an individual, but as a collective your or y'all. Addressing the church, <clears throat> the letter that this was written to. So God's purpose is to create a unified people, the church that can't do it on their own, but follow, trust, give allegiance to, and put their faith in a God that can the God that can. Therefore, God will be glorified because he is able to do this and no one else. Now, to understand this relationship between the Spirit and us, we need to understand this interaction with our inner being and the dwelling in our hearts. Now, the inner being, it's likened to our, our conscience, our personality, our thoughts, our emotions, our moral compass, our decision-making, our will. And the heart is equivalent to the inner being. So this poses a question, how can the Spirit and Christ both be in us? I'll explain that further. But for now, understand that the Spirit is at work within us, bringing about transformation of ourselves into Christ's likeness and submission of our will under Christ's authority. Now, before we submitted ourselves to Christ and before God's interceding salvation created a new humanity in us, what did, what did we do with our inner being and our heart? We acted selfishly and rebelled against God. Now that we have received this new humanity by God's grace, he calls us to act in a new identity that he has given to us. Paul states this in Ephesians 4, verses 22 through 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, we are still aware of the old self, knowing that we have the capacity to act in selfishness and in fear. But God sent his spirit to strengthen us with power because Christ overcame sin and death. What did we celebrate last week? 
Yeah, the resurrection, his resurrection. God made it possible to become new. And it started with salvation, and he is carrying out a plan in us that lasts for eternity. He is making this possible because of the power he has, that reconciling love. What greater power than his love, which is to be practiced by us as we learn to obey his commands? See, his his love is powerful because it casts out fear, as 1 John 4.18 says. His love is powerful because it can transform enemies into friends. His love is powerful because it creates a family and kingdom that is in unity. And he has established a kingdom built on this law of love. John fifteen twelve <clears throat> says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is a command from the king, our Lord, the head of the family, who showed us love in order to reconcile us to himself and become those that love. This is what we are to be, individuals who come together under Christ's authority growing in love for him, loving each other to the point of unity. Now, if I were God, I'm not, but if I were God, that is definitely a place I would want to dwell. A place where we all care for each other to the point of laying down our lives as Christ did for us. That's a place I want to be. I point this out because the Spirit was not given to you in order to perform the miraculous so you feel special. He was given in order to carry out the shaping of the living stones, you and me, for Christ's dwelling, ultimately for God's glory. And this is weighty, but be encouraged that God didn't leave us on our own strength, our own devices. We couldn't do this on our own. I love how John 14, verses 15 through 21 puts it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. See, Christ knew that to keep his commands, we need him. Also, he can't dwell in multiple places in his bodily form. Because he's now seated on the throne in heaven. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is given who is not restricted to a single point. And this also helps clarify back in Ephesians why it says Christ may dwell in your hearts. Christ isn't going to physically dwell in your hearts. 
but as the spirit that is guiding our wills to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Therefore, the mind of Christ is in each member of the body of the church. And though we are all different, if we all have the mind of Christ, we can walk in unity. I specifically point out the mind of Christ because it is a phrase Paul uses in the Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What we have to recognize is that the Spirit is strengthening us with the power of God, and he is doing so to act in reconciling love. In doing so, we are being transformed to have the same mind of Christ. Could it be then that Christ wants to dwell in our relationships just as much as he wants to dwell in each of our hearts? You see, Paul gets that God has true unity that is built on eternal love, love that acts selflessly towards one another, And we all need an individual relationship with Christ. That's true. But it isn't just for ourselves. It is to be transformed to allow Christ to dwell in our relationships within the church and to reach out to the broken that are still in need of Christ. Hear Paul's plea to not give into selfishness and strive against the Holy Spirit's work to unite the church. Remember that the reconciling love that Christ has lavished upon you, that is, was poured out by you by the blood that he shed on the cross. Realize the direction that Christ is leading you in to walk in a new life because he is risen. And understand that this is not for you to keep for yourself, for that would not give God any glory. The transformation in you is meant to disperse into all the relationships around you, especially those within the church. So today we're going to be taking communion. And I want you to be focused on the love of Christ power that he's given you by his spirit, that he wants us to act in that same love that he showed us. And this is going to be your homework for today, this question. Is there anything the spirit would ask you to lay down in order to reconcile with the brothers or sisters around you? Is there anything the spirit would ask you to lay down in order to reconcile with the brothers or sisters around you? Because this, if we can answer this, it's going to lead us to 
unify with each other, to deal with the mess that we are by His Spirit. And this may seem harsh to have to deal with that, but I would encourage you to evaluate what the Scripture is stating will give God glory. Because Christ reconciled us to Him, and the Spirit will lead us in this reconciling love. Now, if you stay in unresolved conflict, I caution you, that is not unity. Unresolved conflict is not unity. Now, we can have differing opinions on a multitude of subjects, and that's okay. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Where we get into the conflict is where we have unspoken, misaligned expectations. We just don't deal with it. So we need to work through the conflict that divides because God is building a people of unity where he will dwell. This gives him glory. Just look at the world. Kind of get out, get out of yourselves. Look at the world. There is so much dispute and division, right? There's a lot of conflict out there. If God can create a people of unity in the midst of that, wow. That's awesome. That's not, I'm not talking surfer dude. Awesome. I'm talking fall on your face and worship him. Awesome. You got me? See, the enemy wants to denounce and dethrone our God. The enemy wants us to be divided, yet God will not be overcome. He will accomplish his will. The question is, do you want to be a part of that unity or the division? Do you want to denounce God or give God glory? See, he didn't just just show us this powerful love, but he is transforming us by it into a people that operate in this reconciling love, joining together to function as a dwelling place for God and to help us in this difficult endeavor. He gave us the helper, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is working in us because we lack the strength and understanding to be like Christ. For Christ to be in the church The Spirit is in us to bring about the transformation of ourselves. And that leads to the unity that God will dwell in for his glory. So I want to encourage you all in your perseverance of this season that we have been in. I have seen the power of Christ's love grow in many of you. I see the Holy Spirit working in your convictions, in your caring for each other, and how you love each other. And that is something that God is deserving of praise for. That gives him glory. Man, to take those that were his enemies and bring about a transformation to make them his friends and create 
a unity between the people that learn to act in his likeness. There's no other like him. No other. 